are trying to take large chunks from the Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we come today to Romans 9 through 11. We have seen Paul expound the need for justification. Remember, he took his text in Romans 1.17 that righteous, the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God that comes by faith and faith alone. And then in chapters 1 through 3, he expounded for us the need for justification, demonstrating the universal guilt and depravity of all mankind. Then in chapters 3 through uh, uh, 5, he demonstrated for us the method of justification. And there he expounded for us at some length the way that God justifies ungodly people is by sending his son to be for us our substitute to stand in for us and be all that God requires of us. And so now, because we have him as our substitute, standing in our place, having paid our penalty, having given to us his perfect record and righteousness, God now is just and the justifier of ungodly people who believe in Jesus. So we've seen the need for justification. We've seen the method of justification. And then we spent last time speaking of the benefits of justification in our union with Christ. And we saw that in the work of Christ, by union with him, we are freed from condemnation and death. We're freed from sin. Chapter 6, chapter 7, we're freed from the law. Chapter 8, we're freed from fear with the great hope that we have in Christ. And now we come to chapters 9 through 11, which bring us to a discussion of the people of justification. Who are the people who are justified? And this, in turn, will take us to a discussion of Israel, because that is Paul's uh, point of concern here, as we saw this morning in verses 1 and following. And then it also will take us to a glimpse of the end times. So hopefully we will get this finished this morning before the end times come. But we have a lot of material to cover, and I'm later getting on than usual if I go late. I want you to realize that I haven't taken your time, but somebody else did. (laughs) Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, 
if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruit is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Or who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Father, what a marvelous portion of Scripture this is. We thank you for this revelation to us that we may know your purpose and plan to honor yourself, to glorify your own name through the redemption of fallen humanity. Give us understanding of this that we may praise and worship you better. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I don't know if you're the contemplative sort or not, but have you ever wondered, what is God up to? Big picture things. What is God up to? What's the purpose of the program? What's this project all about? Now, you might not have a particularly theological mind, but just what's it all about? From Nebuchadnezzar to Alexander to Julius Caesar to Hitler to Mao Zedong to Saddam Hussein, all of these great leaders, individuals by the millions of us have come and gone, done their thing and died. What's the point of it all? What is God up to? In all of this, one nation after another rising, falling, leadership being given from one to the next. What's God's purpose in it all? Is this just willy-nilly or does God have a point to it? Is it going anywhere? Well, Romans 9 to 11 is given to us to answer exactly that kind of question. And here the inspired apostle gives for us sort of a panorama of world history to let us in on what God is up to, particularly in this age. A panorama of world history. Now, we tend to call it around here redemptive history. Don't let that confuse you. Redemptive history is no different from any other history except from the perspective. We're viewing history from the perspective of God's unfolding purpose of redemption. And so we call it redemptive history. But God is set out in history to honor himself through redemption. The Bible's replete with statements like that. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. And God's purpose in this is to save the world. How is he going about that? What's the program look like? From the first note of the Bible in the beginning to the last note of the Bible, when the same God tells us it is done, what's the purpose in between time in all that lies between well, that's what the Apostle Paul takes up as it pertains to this age in Romans 9 to 11. And it shouldn't surprise us in all of this, as we've read through chapter 9 this morning and chapter 11. We didn't take time for chapter 10. I would like to have, but we'll try to skim it quickly as we go through this morning. It shouldn't surprise us to find that Israel plays a central role in the discussion. God made some very special and very prominent promises to the nation of Israel. He made a lot over them. He made a lot of noise about those promises back through the Old Testament again and again. And Paul refers to those promises and those special privileges in chapter 9, if you look back, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Israelites, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. These are the privileges that belong to these people. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see that they feature prominently in this discussion. What gives rise to this question in the first place here with the Apostle Paul is that he's been expounding, as we have seen, the nature of justification and its attending blessings. God justifies believers, ungodly though they are, through Christ and what he has done in their place. And it's becoming painfully clear for the Apostle at this point now that Israel, who has received all of these wonderful privileges and blessings, has begun to take a back seat. 
They seem to be out of the picture. And this whole gospel thing seems to be for Gentiles and not for Israel. And Paul is simply wondering, what's up with that, given the fact that they were given so many blessings and privileges to begin with? And so it's painful for Paul, as he says in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could, could wish myself accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Chapter 10 and verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. They're, they have a privileged status that was given to them, and it's frustrating to the Apostle Paul at this point to wonder what has happened to them and how do we explain the fact that they have begun to take backseat. Have their promises been annulled? Have those promises failed? What's happened? And this leads Paul to speak in terms of the big picture. What is God up to? In world history. And in fact, the problem goes a bit deeper than that here in our context, as we've seen working through Romans. Paul has just expressed in exciting terms at the end of chapter 8 the fact that in Christ we've been freed, liberated from fear. That is, how can I possibly lose at this point if God has an eternal purpose and in that eternal purpose he has included me? How could I possibly lose? But then, wait a second, didn't he give some similar kinds of promises? Didn't he give promises to Israel? How do we explain the fact that they have lost? And if Israel fails, what about these promises to us? How certain are God's decrees after all? And so Paul then begins in chapters 9 through 11 to give us in summary statement here an explanation of God's purpose in this age. And he begins in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, with a reaffirmation of this Jewish advantage. We've already seen it. Verses 2 and 3, his heart for Israel. Chapter, or verses 4 and 5, their privileges that have been given to them. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. And notice the present tense. To them belong these things. They have these promises To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Their privileged status, then, he is saying already, has not been revoked. They still have these promises. God made promises, and he will keep them. And this is what he expounds, then, through the rest of these chapters. First thing. However, that demands some clarification. So verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for, and what's his first explanation here? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. That is the first step of the answer then, is that, all right, Israel is on, all of Israel, in large terms, Israel is in unbelief. Does that mean the promise has been disannulled? No, Paul says, don't misunderstand the promise. The promise never was that every last descendant of Abraham 
would be saved. That was never the promise. And so he says in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, there's an Israel, and then there's an Israel. There is an Israel within Israel. Now, be careful before we go on not to misunderstand this verse. Some people have taken this. We don't see this interpretation much anymore, thankfully, but uh, many in the past have taken this, verse 6, as a widening of the promise. And they've reversed the wording to do it. And they would say, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, Gentiles also are Israel who come to faith. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not speaking of a widening of the promise. He's speaking of a narrowing of the promise. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, there's a narrowing of the promise. Those, it's not for every last individual Israelite, but it is for those who believe within Israel. That's the promise. The promise is for those in Israel who believe it. And so, so not just because you are a descendant of Abraham can you claim that you're okay. And this, of course, is a big problem that we run into in the New Testament very often. And so Paul is saying there's a narrowing here, and the narrowing ultimately is due to divine election. Verses 7 and 8. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. Who determined that? That it would be Isaac and not Ishmael. God did. Verses 10 and following. It's Jacob. Not Esau. Who determined that? God determined that. There's a purpose of election within Israel. Now, of course, as soon as you begin to speak of the doctrine of election, there's going to be objections brought up. And this Paul takes up in the remainder of Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 14, you see that he anticipates the objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God on his part? By no means. Now, this is a fascinating verse for you to remember when you get in discussion with your friends about the doctrine of election, that often today the doctrine of election is what is, is a, they attempt to explain it in terms of, well, God looked ahead, saw who would believe, chose them on that basis, and somehow this whole problem of God being unfair is resolved that way. And what I want to point out here is a fascinating observation. It's very important Paul's doctrine of election anticipates that objection. That is, Paul's doctrine of election, God chooses whom will be saved, anticipates this objection, that's not fair. And all I want to point out here in passing quickly is that if your doctrine of election doesn't have that problem built into it, whatever else you can say about it, it's not Paul's doctrine. God chooses whom will be saved, And verse 14, he begins now to take on that objection. His answer, verses 14 through 24, is very simply, who are you to judge what God and cannot do? He displayed his power to Pharaoh in this way. He raised him up for this purpose, to show his power in him, and you don't object to that. Or, no one objects when a potter takes a lump of clay and makes with this part of the lump what he wants and that part of the lump what he wants. He might make a beautiful vase with one and an ashtray with the other. Who's to say? The potter has that right. And so Paul sort of pulls rank on us and says, God has rights. And who are you, the creature, to say against the Creator what he can and cannot do? 
He gives another answer to this problem of election in verses 25 and following. And here it takes a more positive approach. And that is to say, this matter of divine election really is Israel's only hope. And here he views election from a very positive standpoint. And he begins to quote some of the prophets. Verses 25 and 26, he he quotes Hosea. You remember the whole story of Hosea with the adulterous wife being a picture of Israel who runs away from God and does not become her and it ceases to be his people and then he brings them back and they are his people again. And he quotes that here. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That is because of God's election, his choosing of a remnant will be saved. Israel continues. Verse 28 and following again, the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and and without delay. And as Israel predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, the point in all of this is simply that election is the only hope anyone ever has. Here he's speaking in terms of Israel. But because of God's election, because it was not left up to them, because of divine election, choosing a remnant, Israel has not fallen off altogether. Now next, hurrying along in his argument, he explains in verse, chapter 9, verse 30, and then into chapter 10. He explains that while God's election is at work, the fault, this is important, while God's election is at work, the fault for Israel's failure is her own. That is, Israel cannot say they have fallen because God didn't choose me. They have fallen simply because they refused the Messiah. They have fallen because of unbelief. They have fallen because they will not trust in Christ. And that's Paul's argument beginning at the end here of chapter 9 and then through chapter 10 as well. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. Well, let's start it with verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Now, here would have been the great opportunity for the hyper-Calvinists to say, well, the reason they didn't attain to it is because God didn't choose them. But what Paul says is they didn't attain it, and it was their fault. And their fault was this. They didn't pursue it by faith. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here he quotes Isaiah the prophet again. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That great passage of of Christ here being spoken of as the foundation stone of the building. And Israel seeing it and said, nah, that can't be it. And they stumble right over it. And they won't believe. And because of their unbelief, they've fallen aside. Paul continues that in chapter 10 as well. Notice verses 1 and following. My heart's prayer for Israel is that they be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That's not the problem. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness 
They did not submit to God's righteousness. Ah, they got a zeal. They're religious and they're even sincere. And they pursue righteousness, but they pursue it as though it was something they can attain themselves. And they will not submit to the Lord Christ who has accomplished for them what, for us what God has required of us. No, it can't be that. We've got to do it ourselves. And they've stumbled right over the, ro- the foundation stone. And they are in unbelief. Well, all of this to say what Paul started out in chapter 9 saying, God never promised that by merely means of physical descent all, would, all of Israel would be saved. There's a narrowing. And that narrowing is due to election. And that narrowing is due to Israel's unbelief. And those within who believe are saved. This is not a promise for all Israel. This is a promise for all Israel who believes. To say it another way, Israel's only hope, Israel's only hope is that God in mercy will somehow turn to them again and bring them to faith. It's Israel's only hope. That's anybody's only hope. And Paul gives us a hint of that in chapter 10, verse 19. Here we catch our first hint of what God is up to in all of this. Chapter 10, verse 19. I ask, did did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Here we have the first hint of what God is up to in then, with all of this. God will indeed turn again to Israel, but he will gather them, strangely, by means of the Gentiles. It will provoke you to jealousy. God will save these people who are not a nation. And in the end, Israel will be provoked to jealousy by it. Well, he doesn't expound on that at length here. We'll pick that up in a minute. But at this point, notice his point. God has turned from Israel to the Gentiles, but he has turned from Israel to the Gentiles in order by them to turn again to Israel and provoke them to jealousy. By means of the Gentiles, Israel then will be brought to faith and blessing. Now we come to chapter 11 where we have more specifically Paul addressing this purpose for Israel. Analyzing the problem with Israel, he tells us first, in verses 1 to 10, Israel's failure is not total. Israel's failure is not total. Let's begin with verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, this is a question that naturally arises from the previous verse. The end of chapter 10, notice verse 21 of Israel. He says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Here's God's position toward Israel. If you will come, I will have you. If you come, I will have you. If you come, I will have you. Will they come? No, no, no. Disobedient, stiff-necked, rebellious people. It's the way they were described by Moses, Isaiah, and now Paul's picking up on it as well. But then that raises the question. So I ask, therefore, 
Has God rejected his people? That is the condition that characterized Israel in Isaiah's day. It has persisted in Paul's day. Will that continue? Has God cast away his people? And Paul answers it in several ways. First of all, the denial, by no means. We have the older translation, God forbid. That is to say, there is something about the question itself that gives you the answer. Shall God or has God cast off what? His people? Well, the question answers itself. It would be blasphemous to think that God has cast off his people by no means. And in fact, the way this question is worded in the original expects a negative answer. We could translate it something like, God has not rejected his people, has he? By no means. Of course not. It can't be. God forbid. There's something about even that thought that is particularly wrong. God won't break his word. There may be changes along the way. There may be some surprises of whatever kind. But God's promises are sure. So then he gives an illustration of that in the next part of the verse. Verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an illustration of this. I'm an Israelite, descended from Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. Can't be done with Israel altogether. I'm here, Paul says. Then verses 2 through 7, that takes us into this discussion of the remnant. A remnant within Israel who will be saved. And he gives this illustration of Elijah. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And you remember Elijah at this point a little bit discouraged, we might say. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your, uh, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. I'm the only one faithful. And now they're trying to kill me too. And what did God say? Oh, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. All right, what do you draw from this, Paul? Verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And Paul's point here is simply to say that God is not done with Israel, and it is evident that he's not by the fact that there is this remnant within Israel who believes. Now, next question, what does that say about the rest of Israel? If it's a remnant who believes, what about the rest of Israel? Verses 7 and following, well, it means they were given judicial blindness. They've been hardened. But his point now in verses 1 through 10 is to say Israel's rejection is not total. There's a remnant. Now in verses 11 and following, Paul takes the next step, verses 11 through 24, and he says this blindness of Israel is not final. First of all, it's not total. And number two, it's not final. And here we'll take just a little bit more time looking at some of these verses. Verse 11. Notice the question. So I ask, Did they stumble 
in order that they might fall? You understand the question? This time of unbelief, is that what it's going to be permanently? Is that it? Is that the end of the story? Have they stumbled like this in order there may be a complete failure? Again, by no means. That can't be. And he begins to to answer it. First of all, with this denial again. No, that can't be. By no means. And then answer number two. The next part of verse 11, he tells us their failure is intended to bring about Gentile in gathering. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God has a purpose in this. Yes, they have been hardened. Yes, they've been blinded. blinded. Yes, they are in unbelief. And yes, they have stumbled. But God has a purpose in that. And guess what that purpose is? That purpose is to bring the gospel to Gentiles. Now, this is something that we see recorded actually in the narrative of the history of the New Testament itself. Jesus himself speaks like this in Matthew chapter 21 when he says to Israel, therefore the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. We find it in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 18 as well where Paul reaches these points in his ministry with the Jews. He says, that's it. I turn. I'm going to the Gentiles. We see this working out in the New Testament then itself. The point of it is that it was in the plan of God that Israel would reject Jesus. And it was in his plan that they reject Jesus and stumble like this so that then the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. It seemed, it seemed that divine blessing was all damned up in Israel. But now by their unbelief, blessing has spilled over to the world. And the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. So Paul is answering the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Absolutely not. Rather, God has a purpose in this so that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. Notice the next part of his answer in chapter 11, verse 11. The last part of the verse. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? Here we are again. So as to make Israel jealous. Now this reaches back to Deuteronomy, Isaiah, where God will through the Gentiles, these people who are not a nation, as we saw in chapter 10, verse 19, making Israel jealous by their blessings. All right, now let's regroup here quickly to see the next step. We'll... Have they stumbled in order that they fall altogether? Absolutely not. This was in the plan of God so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, which in turn will provoke Israel to jealousy. Now notice Paul's reasoning in the last part of his answer here in verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, okay, what does that mean? If their trespass, their failure, their unbelief, means blessing to the Gentiles, okay? Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? Now, Paul's language here is just really suggestive in an exciting kind of way. Follow his thinking. All right. Israel had the blessings. They rejected it. 
But that was in the plan of God so that by their rejection, blessing would go to the world. Just think of it. Just think of the advantage that has come to us Gentiles because of Israelite unbelief. Isn't that a great thing? As far as we're concerned, it is. Now, Paul is saying, okay, Israel seemed to have the blessing. They rejected it, so they've been set aside. But that setting aside was God's plan to take the gospel to the nations, which in turn will provoke Israel to jealousy, bring them to faith. And Paul is thinking, now, whoa, whoa, whoa. If the setting aside of Israel, if Israel's unbelief meant blessing to the world, my soul in the morning, what will their belief, their faith, their ingathering be? You see his, see his thinking? If, if, if by their failure, blessing has come to the world, what will their blessing mean to the world? That's verse 12. It's also verse 15 as well. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul pictures for us here a great time of gospel advance. God had promised Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he is going to accomplish that purpose. It's really a fascinating prospect that he gives us here. By their setting aside, blessing has come. What? How can we imagine the greatness of the blessing that will come by their acceptance? Well, he explains it further in verses 16 through 24, particularly with this discussion of the olive tree, these natural branches, Israel, they belong to the Abrahamic trunk, root. They belong to it by nature, yet they've been cut off, peeled away, pruned off. And now wild olive branches have been grafted in. And the first thing he gives is a warning to the Gentiles. Don't boast yourself against the Jews. There's a lot of that kind of discussion in the book of Romans. If he cast off natural branches, don't think that you're privileged. This is by mercy. But in fact, the same is true for all Jews and Gentiles alike. God's promise is firm, but it is a promise that is realized individually by faith alone. And so he returns to the question or the subject of Jewish advantage in verse 24. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 23, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. God is able to do that. Now in verses 25 and following, he finally reaches the climax of his argument Israel's blessing is certain. Up to this point, he has spoken really almost exclusively in terms of probability. God is able to graft them in again. Surely they'll be grafted in again. Now he says in verse 25, 
Israel's failure is partial and it is temporary. It is only partial and it is temporary. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Partial hardening has come until until the time of the Gentiles is full. Now, how does that make you think? If her failure, Israel's failure, was only until, sounds like there's a time coming where Israel will be accepted again. Don't you expect that's what Paul has been building to in all of this? This is the intention of God through this age. Israel has been set aside because of her unbelief, but not totally and not finally. But by her unbelief, blessing has gone to the nations. And by their gathering, Israel will be provoked to jealousy. And what kind of blessing that will bring to the world is yet to be seen. And what Paul implies then in verse 25, he affirms again in verse 26, that in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and here he quotes the prophet Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. And here he refers to the new covenant. I will take away their sins. That is, it's a matter of recorded prophecy. As it is written, Isaiah. And then verse 27, more of the same. And so we have a kind of summary in verse 28 as regards the gospel. Israel, what do we think of Israel? What's our opinion of them now? As regards the gospel, there are enemies. Enemies of God. But it's enemies of God for your sake because by their rejection, the gospel has come to us. So what do we think of Israel? As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Will Israel, God's people, be cut off? Paul says, by no means. It reminds me of the story of that young boy in London hospital who wanted to see the king years ago. The king came to visit. The boy didn't recognize him because the king wasn't wearing his crown and his robes. And didn't recognize him. The king left. He didn't know the king had been there. And there's something like that of a picture of Israel here. Their long-awaited king came. And when he came, he wasn't what they would have expected. He came in humility, in derision, and he was oppressed. And they would have nothing to do with it. And so they missed him. And missing, missing him, they missed any blessing that comes in him. And that had been set aside. Paul says in verse 26, in that day, when the deliverer comes from Zion, he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob and they will come again in faith and what blessing that will bring to the world. 
So verses 29 and following, we have some, a restatement of the climax of his argument. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has graciously purposed worldwide salvation so that the blessing of Abraham will extend to all of the families of the earth. In the words of verse 15, if their rejection meant blessing to the world, what do we have ahead of us to see in the time of their acceptance? We have every reason for optimism. There is a great day of gospel advance coming. Now, one thing is left after all of this, and that is, what does all this make you think about God? Doesn't this... Doesn't this make you think that he's kind of God over history? And here he chooses a man by the name of Abraham and determines that by him he'll, take, he'll give blessing to the entire world. And now the family of Abraham has rejected him. And by their rejection, blessing has spilled over to the rest of the world. We've seen that then in this whole age, the gospel making its way through the ends of the earth. And by that, God says, Israel will finally be provoked to jealousy and she'll be accepted again. And then what? Do the blessings come by faith only? Yes, they come by faith only. That's it. That's it. But God says that's a faith that he intends to effect in men and women the world over from every family on the face of the earth. And so you get the picture here of, of a great drama, a, a plot that's set in place from the beginning. God has been working it out, his purpose of grace that will include all. And it was a particular stroke of grace that included us Gentiles grafting us into this olive tree that wasn't ours. It was kind of like a, an extra dose of grace for us. But here he brings us in, and by that we're going to see this life from the dead, this great gospel advance. And you're left with all of that at the end to say, what a wonderful God this is. He could have consigned the whole world to hell. And instead, he is determined to save from every nation and tribe and kindred under heaven, and not only to his people Israel. And so Paul says in verse 33, with a kind of just spontaneous doxology, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he, might be re, that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the God we serve. This history is not out of control. He has a purpose in it all. And by it all he will bring humanity, the world, to redemption 
in order that we together might praise him. And we find a picture of this when we get to the book of Revelation where all the redeemed standing before the throne from every tribe and kindred and tongue under heaven singing praises to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, what a marvelous plan of redemption this is. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your grand purpose to redeem the world. How thankful we are that you have included us in this purpose. We feel with the Apostle Paul this great desire in our hearts to sing praise to you because of your great purpose of grace. We thank you that you have made us a part of it. Thank you for Christ who has saved us. Thank you for your mercy in sending him. How we look forward to that day when together we will all sing your praises perfectly. Until then, we pray that you'll keep us faithful in Jesus' name. You take your training handles one more time. Turn to number 217, 217. Let's stand together. We'll sing, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. Stand to the right. 